give you thanks that we can come and um, offer our worship to you. And Lord, help us to hear your word as well, that you might shape us and change us according to your will as your disciples, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the last year or so, I've become um, very interested in astronomy. Uh, and the more you learn about the universe, the more you realise how big it is. I mean, it's really big. For example, if the sun were the size of a pea, seven millimetres in diameter, the earth would be a tiny dot at arm's length, and our nearest neighbouring star would be an Omaru, 240 kilometres away. And when you think of the 400, sorry, 400 billion stars in the Milky Way and the 200 billion galaxies in the universe, approximately, it can make you feel pretty small and humble, or at least it should. Uh, but one of the paradoxes is that today an, a number of world leaders uh, who strut around on the world stage are anything but humble. It's a besetting kind of human condition that we, we get ahead of ourselves in different ways. And today's parable addresses this deep issue of our sense of self and our attitude, who we are before God, before others, and before God's creation. So Jesus told a short story about two men who went up to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. One was a Pharisee. He obeyed the Torah. He fasted. He tithed. Not just the minimum requirement, but at every point he surpassed the obligations of the law. Now, in ancient times, a person's external form of observance was a pretty good indicator of their inward piety. And Judaism had a systematized form of what today we would call virtue signaling. So everyone knew that this Pharisee was righteous. He was praiseworthy. He was a model of Judaism. And he began his prayer thanking God that he wasn't like other people, you know, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And you can imagine him turning his head at that moment uh, and looking with contempt at a person who was sneaking into the very back of the temple court. And he was actually right, uh, because the tax collector was probably a thief and a rogue, because he was in collaboration with the Romans to collect taxes. Who from? His fellow Jews to actually fund the occupying force of his own country. He was a traitor. He didn't keep the law. He wasn't righteous. But look closely at the text, because there are a number of other details that strengthen this comparison between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus is a master storyteller. We need to be aware of all the little details along the way. For example, the setting of this story is the temple. And the temple had a number of concentric areas, the court of Gentiles, the court of women, the court of Israel, the court of priests, and then the Holy of Holies right at the very center. And in signaling the holiness of God, that was the whole intention of the, the way the temple was laid out, it also had the unfortunate effect of separating people. And this was a powerful reminder to the tax collector that he was indeed far from God. Here's another observation. It says that the, the Pharisee is thankful but he's not thankful to God. He's thankful that he's not like the tax collector. Instead of thinking about his own standing before God, he feels superior because he compares himself to this other person. 
Think also about the way the, the Pharisee parades his virtue so publicly. As he rehearses his deeds and righteous life, you can imagine his heart swelling with pride. He's clearly trying to put God in his debt. He's ticking off all the reasons why God should love and accept him. The reasons why God should be really grateful that he is the MVP of team Judaism. Mm. By comparison, the tax collector has no lists of virtues to declare at all. He lowers his head, he beats his breast, and cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. New Testament scholar James Edwards said, Without merits to stand on, he stands humbly before God. Without merits to speak for him, he must plead to God. Without merits to be rewarded, his only option is to plead for God's mercy. The Pharisee stands before God in self-congratulation. The tax collector stands before God in prayer. And when Jesus summarizes at the end of the story, he says, I tell you, the tax collector went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So, here's a question. Is this story a simple morality tale where the take-home is simply, don't be arrogant like that Pharisee, but rather be humble like that tax collector? Because I'm not sure it's quite as simple as that. And here's the reason why. If we say, I would never recite my virtues publicly like that or speak so dismissively about someone else. How loathsome of that Pharisee to treat the tax collector in that way. Then it's a short step to then say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, you know, hypocrites, overly pious, self-righteous, or even like that Pharisee we read about in church today. After all, we're great supporters. You know, we come to church each week, listen attentively to the sermon, give generously. But most importantly, we've really learned that lesson that we should always be humble. I think we've done quite well. And if others took a leaf out of our book, the church would be better for it. So there's more here than meets the eye. And the real issue is the difference between righteousness and justification. It says in verse 9, as Jesus starts the story, that the parable is about some who believe themselves to be righteous. But then in verse 14, at the very end of this wee story, he declares that the tax collector went home not righteous, but justified. So the way the story is told, the Pharisee is righteous, he's ticked all the boxes, he's a model of piety, but he did not go home justified before God. No, it was the person who knew deep down that he simply didn't qualify. And yet through his humility and his great sense of God's love, his need for God's love, desperately cried out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that is the unexpected genius of the Christian faith, if I can put it like that. None of us deserve God's love at all. But if we acknowledge our need, we receive it. And that's not because God withholds it until somehow we tick yet another box. No, it's because 
we can't receive if we think we're already full. We have to give up our achievements, empty ourselves before we can receive the greatest gift of all, God's acceptance and love. We put down first in order to receive. Here's an illustration. When my kids were young, none of them here at the moment, that's good, and they had created problems at school. This didn't happen all the time, but it did happen. They, did, uh, they, um, they were defiant in the supermarket, were unkind to each other. Did anything change in our basic love for our children? No, of course not. We loved our children unconditionally. And it's the same with God. God does not love us because we do the right thing. God loves us because, well, that's what God is like. God loves us because God is love. And it's through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that God declares us to be justified. Paul would later say in Titus chapter 3, God saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Now, I want to conclude by thinking about how we work out this life of faith. So the question is this. Now that we have been justified before God through what Jesus has done for us, not what we could do for ourselves, how then should we live? And I want to make one main application. I could take this in lots of different directions, but this morning, because it's Bike to Church Sunday, I want to take it in that particular direction. Think about the Pharisee one more time. The Pharisees, and indeed the ancient people of Israel, were the recipients of God's amazing love. God rescued them from Egypt, gave them the law to live by, was with them in the wilderness, and gave them their special land. God gave them a tremendous gift in many different facets. But what happens with gifts sometimes? Well, a gift can become a possession, and then it can become an entitlement if we're not careful. So the law, which was given to govern and carefully define Israel as God's special people, over time became an instrument to separate and to stigmatize and to create feelings of superiority. That was not the original intention, but that's kind of what happened because human beings were involved. Now, in the same way, you and I have been given many gifts we have been given the gift of salvation, the gift of the church, and many talents with which to serve God and the common good. But God has also given us the gift of this beautiful world. But like ancient Israel, the gift has become our possession, or we think it has. And we feel entitled, or we have felt entitled to use the world in whatever way we want it. And we have treated it poorly, not like a precious gift to steward and love and nurture, but a possession that we think we can do with as we wish. And we have spoiled God's good creation. And that is very sad indeed. 
I began by speaking about how the sheer scale of the universe should generate feelings of humility in us. But I would also urge us to also think of the world in the same way. The earth is beautiful. The earth is majestic. The earth is mysterious. And the earth is a gift. And those who have been justified, who have experienced the sheer grace of God, will know the feelings of gratitude that well up in our hearts like the tax collector as he went home. And those feelings of awe and gratitude ought to be directed towards God's precious world as well. The home he has given us to care for, to tend and to enjoy. And I'm going to, to put more practical legs on this. I'm going to invite Ian to come forward and I've got a few questions I want to ask him. So Ian, if you take this microphone. First okay. of all, thank you for coming and uh, sharing with us because we, I know that you have some particular um, uh, background, a background and concerns that I think could challenge us all here this morning. So, first question, when did you first get interested in sustainability for the planet? Well, I was uh, very lucky in my 20s. My background, my professional background is technology in uh, computers. And so I've always been interested in systems. And I um, became, got an internship with Buckminster Fuller. And he was a, was a technologist. He's the fellow who invented the geodesic domes. You might have seen uh, big uh, spherical buildings. And he was really interested. I was really captivated by his message at that time, just thinking about the planet in terms of how can we do more with less? And he thought the trend in technology was always taking, doing more and more with less and less. So he thought, well, how can we make, do even more? How can we have enough, um, how can we ensure that everybody on earth can live at a higher standard of living, but use less technology? We can do more and more with less and less, and we should be able to get to the point where we can do everything with nothing. That's, that should be our goal. So I interned with him and I was lucky enough to, um, well, amazing things I saw in the 70s. I visited a house that was um, totally self-sufficient in energy for the whole year. It didn't cost anything to heat it. It was also totally self-sufficient in food. It was growing all they had food systems in there. And that was all known in the 70s. And I thought the, the future looked great. And I was really intrigued with technology. But it turned out um, it took... Um, for that to happen, to have everybody living at a higher standard of living takes more than um, technology. It also takes um, faith as well. And um, Marette and I, uh, for many years, were part of uh, a Quaker church and Mennonite peace churches. And, um, uh, and there, <clears throat> I was also very taken with George Fox's message of um, working, walking quietly over the earth and cheerfully over the earth. And how can we um, just care, care for the planet and, and uh, seek peace? Thank you, Ian. So your, your interest goes way back, and uh, so that's encouraging. You were an early adopter. I think that's what they, they say these days. So second question, how does your faith as a Christian help you deal with the climate crisis? Incredibly. 
I, I just um, on many levels, I think. Um, well, first of all, just our faith uh, encourages us to care for other people, just like Jesus, he demonstrated caring for other people. Um, and those less fortunate themselves, despite what their, their labels might have been. And um, he sort of decided to, uh, and Jesus was a man of the future. And those of, I mean, we've all heard about climate crisis and climate change, um, but it's an incredibly uh, challenging uh, problem. Um, and so how do we go about, how do I go about thinking about something like that? Um, Jesus also was in a time where he was born into a time in the Roman times where it was incredibly oppressive uh, world is born into like ninety percent of your earnings would go to taxes, and the taxes would be used, like Mark mentioned, <laughs> to, uh, to crucify people and put them in prison and uh, and kill them. But Jesus didn't see that. He didn't see the future as being like the past. He said, "There's going to be a different future, and I can envision it. I can, and God's going to help me get there, and um, and I can do it by action." God, Jesus did action. He did not um, sit idly back or just even quietly pray. He took quite extreme action because he knew the future was not, the future could be better. Thank you. That's really a great insight. Jesus had a vision. Have you found analogies from history that can guide you? Yeah, Christians in the past, I mean, you think about how can we rise what can we'll get to in a minute? What can we do <laughs> in a situation that's so, so unprecedented uh, in history, and not just history, in geological history as well as that we're living in right at this very moment? Um, Christians in the past, I mean, Wilberforce is the one I keep coming back to. He saw he was also born into a world that, as a Christian, didn't make sense to him. I mean, why could? If God treats everybody equally, why are there slaves? And why are there um, slave owners? That doesn't make any sense for our, in faith. So he took action on many levels, right? Well, he was also very political, but in the personal level, and said, we can end slavery. And people thought he was crazy. How could you end slavery when, look at all the businesses that depend on slavery. I mean, well, all these businesses are going to go bankrupt. All jobs won't have jobs. How everything will cost more? <laughs> it was impossible. But Wilberforce no, says it's not possible. My faith tells me it is possible. And in the end, slavery was abolished, and it was because of um, Christ, our Christian faith. So we've got a history. Mm -hmm. So there's a link between that social justice issue and the climate change issue. If Christians can galvanize and do something about that, then we can also be part of the solution today. We've done it before, yeah. yeah. Okay, we're gonna close with um, three, could you give me three compelling reasons why we should do something personally about climate change and three yeah. practical things that we can do. Three reasons and three things. Well, three, I'll give you three big things. Um, First of all, 
I mean, God also gave us brains to think, right? And one of the things that made us, <laughs> we managed to use with our thinking is to invent computers. These computers have given us um, computer models that can tell us what the future is going to be like if we don't stop what we're doing. Um, and what are we doing? Um, I'm trying to get it onto three. Um, so there is, the, yeah, the future is not like the past. We have to change our thinking. We have to change um, through action. Is clear. Um, there's the climate change issue. For anybody, you've always read something about it, right? That it's really hard to think about. And the reason it's hard to think about is because our brains don't think that way. We don't think, we think of, oh, my car's broken down, solve this problem, call the phone, go to the garage, get it fixed. But climate change is not, the climate crisis is not a problem that can be fixed. Um, it's, there's multiple things going on at once. It's not, we're just not, so that's why it's really hard to think about. And, and it's really easy just to dismiss it because we wish it wasn't. This data didn't show us what, what our trajectory is. Um, so it's very, so that's one thing. It's just, it's hard to think about and it requires just sort of flipping your brain and thinking about it for a while. Then don't think about it because you feel bad. <laughs> and that's the other thing is too, is, is, um, is this time for despair? Again, coming back to our Christian faith, our Christian faith gives us um, the idea of hope. And I mean, every time we're in church, right, we're, we're, we realize um, we can have hope, but um, we have hope in God. We can have hope even though we don't know how it's going to turn out. How? We just don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I could figure it out. But we, none of us can figure out. Nobody in the world can figure out right now how we're going to navigate through this. But we're all doing our doing different parts. And... That's why everybody can do something because there's very many parts that can be done at very many different levels, but nobody knows except God how it's eventually going to uh, turn out that we actually are going to uh, protect our planet and protect everybody on it, right? The people less fortunate than ourselves, people living in the South Pacific. Um, so it's hope you, and despair, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. What about three practical things that, that we could do like this afternoon? Um, well, who rode their bicycle today? Okay. Okay. <laughs> but uh, because we've all sinned, right? We've all contributed to this problem. So one thing we can do is forgive each other. Because we've all, especially like in my lifetime, it's been an incredible change to the, the atmosphere because of just um, carbon emissions. And I, I didn't intend to do that. I'm sure nobody else intended to do it. But we, our Christian faith gives us a sense of forgiveness. So let's first of all forgive ourselves for what we've done. So then we can start taking action. And some very simple actions to do. Has anybody here planted a tree this year? That's amazing. Yeah, I think I've talked to so many people <laughs> who planted trees or bought property just to plant trees on. So uh, planting trees, um, so, uh, something like 
Voting. Who voted this year? Voting doesn't cost you a cent. And you can vote for people who are going to support uh, preserve, protecting our environment for people, things that we can't do ourselves. Another thing is storytelling. I mean, I know in my generation, we had the chance at a time like this, well, we could have made a difference. We knew climate change was going to happen. We had, knew we had to care for the planet, but I didn't. We didn't. We just didn't do enough. So what are the stories that, especially the older people, can tell younger people about why didn't I do anything at the time? Because that's the moment we're at right now. It is time to act. What, what is holding us back? Let's listen to the stories of other people who've been in that time before. Thank you, Ian. That's been really interesting, helpful, challenging. We appreciate what you've said. Mandy, can you...